0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, formerly the New Books in Hindu Studies, uh, same podcast, same host, uh, more space. Uh, Today I have uh, the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christopher Fleming on a brand new OUP publication, Ownership and Inheritance in Sanskrit Jurisprudence. Christopher, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, Raj. It's a pleasure to be on.
1: I can say that, that your title is not a misnomer, but nevertheless, what's your book about?
2: <laughs> yeah, um, well, about ownership, uh, swatwa, and inheritance, daya in Sanskrit jurisprudence. That would be Dharma Shastra. Um, but I do spend a great deal of time discussing developments in Mimamsa, um, scriptural hermeneutics, and Navya the new logic. So, yes, it's a title that's quite straightforward in 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 what it discusses. Um, I couldn't come up with a clever, you know, phrase colon and then put ownership and inheritance in Sanskrit jurisprudence afterwards. But um, what you see is what you get.
1: Excellent. Well, descriptive titles are always a boon, particularly to those who are researching our undergrads. With these poetic titles, no one has any idea what the book's about by it's (laughs) title, so it's good. Um, So, so. What, how is the book structured and what data are you looking
2: at? Is it all text? What kinds of text like that? You know, it's a great question, Raj. Um, so the book um, is an intellectual history. So it sort of charts the development of this rather abstract concept of, of ownership of, of property um, from say the first millennium CE all the way to the contemporary period. Um, so I look primarily at Dharma Shastra texts, that it would be the Manu Smriti and, and commentaries thereon. Um, I look at things like the Yajnavalkya Smriti and the great Mitakshara that was composed, an elaborate commentary on that. I look at early modern and also medieval Navya Nyaya and Mimamsa treatises. There's a bit on um, some of these great pundit families of Varanasi, the Bhattas and Devas and so forth and how they contribute to the history of property theory and legal models of inheritance. And then um, people who have an interest in, in maybe the more sort of modern period will find the fourth chapter quite interesting. This is the story of the, the reception of, of Dharmashastra in Sanskrit in Anglo-Hindu law, sort of in the um, British colonial period. And we get great discussions of how um, people like William Jones and Henry Colebrook worked with these teams of pundits um, to attempt to craft, with some success and some failure, a body of personal law for Hindu subjects of the British East India Company. Um, and then it ends with some current developments in case law, rulings from the Supreme Court of India and the like, um, about how we get a sort of legal model of the Hindu undivided family today that, um, in many interesting ways, is in conversation with this ancient jurisprudence of Dharmashastra.
1: It certainly is quite niche um, uh, uh, and I would imagine uh, needed. Can you tell us a bit about um, how this project came about?
2: Yeah, so I um, I studied all different types of Sanskrit. I wanted to write um, my dissertation on a fellow named Kamala Karabatta. He's active maybe 1610 to 1640, though he lived presumably quite a bit longer than that. Um, and he was a jack of all trades, so he wrote, Alankara Shastra stuff and Vedanta stuff um, and and a great deal of of Dharma Shastra. And so the idea was to sort of get a snapshot of one of these great Sanskrit polymaths of the early modern period. Um, But somehow, I guess I was seduced by property theory when I encountered Kamalakra's rather um, elaborate and and terribly interesting, at least from my perspective, discussion of, of what is property and how does it relate to inheritance and I know that for your listeners, um, it it probably couldn't get more boring than that um, theories of property. But what the the fascinating thing is is that um, property inheritance are, are sort of integral to all people. Uh, you know, as we as we navigate our lives, we encounter ideas of property every day without really thinking about them. Um, and we all are members of a family, um, and 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 the way we're structured as a family, and the way we. You know, engage in commerce and, and in property lights is I think fascinating. Um, and I'm sure that readers of the book hopefully will um, think that property is fascinating too. Speaking of
1: readers of the book, oh, and I like how you say you were seduced by this topic. You know,
2: you're
1: sometimes <laughs> all the time, you're, you're owned by ownership, Sanskrit ownership. But, um, but speaking of uh, listeners, who might this book be for? Like who, who would be most interested in this book?
2: Well, I mean, it, it appeals to a diverse array of people. Um, if you're a Sanskritist, um, you, you know, however niche that particular field is, um, most Sanskritists have probably encountered ideas of this waswami Swami this definition of what a proprietary relationship is. Um, and it pops up in all kinds of religious literature. So, so a theory of property from that perspective, I think would be helpful for people who are working in Sanskrit. Um, I think that that people who are of Indian origin, of Hindu origin, would find it interesting because um, a lot of people are members of a Hindu undivided family. Um, and it's a rather Byzantine and arcane way of holding property. Um, and, and if people were curious about where that came from, how it evolved over the centuries and, and where it is today, um, uh, they would find that terribly fascinating. Um, if people are interested in legal history, um, In the Indian context, as I said, chapter four, um, I think is a a great groundbreaking account of the origins of Anglo-Hindu personal law and how that's evolved in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. Um, In comparative jurists in particular, I think would find it fascinating um, because India, or at least Dharma Shastra, has one of the world's most sophisticated, um, and I think quite influential theories of property um, that's played a terribly important role in the development of global theories of property. Um, and that's a long and, and complicated argument, but um, you know, people who want a global comparative history of, of property and family relations I think would find that quite interesting. Um, so that's my stuff as best as I can think.
1: That's um, <laughs> fine. So what are some of... Um, just maybe as broad as possible, but so what are what are some of the key concepts or notions or texts that come up when looking at ownership in this cultural
2: context? Yeah, um, so it, you know I don't have to dress it up really. Um, Dharma Shastra presents this very startling and, and, and intriguing notion of ownership of property, this swatva, Swaswami Sambanda where um, different assets, land you know, gold, household furniture can be owned by multiple people simultaneously. So, you know, and in a family, we all have ownership in, say, a chair or something like this. But the kind of rights that you get from that ownership are contingent on your show, your social status, mother, father, brother, caste, so on and so forth. Um, and there's obviously chilling implications to that and good implications too. And it differs in a lot of ways from our knockabout Anglo-American theory of property as exclusive dominion over particular assets. Um, And and so in some ways, it's it's quite striking, this sort of public ownership of all kinds of assets. Um, I think that's a a major contribution, and and that goes hand in hand with the Hindu undivided family of people living as extended families and and sharing assets. and of course, that changed dramatically with the interaction of Anglo law in the in the 18th and 19th centuries um, in the Hindu unfighted family changed significantly. Um, so I think that's the big takeaway is that there's this fascinating, complicated and, and fairly misunderstood system of property holding in India. Now, what are the, the sort of major things that I work with? Um, a lot of Navya Nyaya texts um, from um from uh, Bengal and Bihar, um, sort of from the medieval period, and then all kinds of, of, of fabulous manuscripts um, from Varanasi, as I mentioned, the Bhatta families. And I also worked with um, a text that I'm, I'm quite fond of called the Vivada Bhangarnava. It's this massive Dharma Shastra digest that's made in the 1780s, 1790s by a team of pundits that worked with um, William Jones and Henry Colebrook. Um, and it's a massive and, and, and very complicated um, anthology um, that maybe hasn't received the attention that it deserves, in part, because it's very hard to work with. Um, and and I, I think it's great.
1: Fascinating. Do you have a sense of to what extent um, these Dhamma Shastras uh, were in vogue in Indian history or were, were used as sort of standard for arbitrating situations?
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, so Patrick Olivelle, Don Davis, if I have forgotten someone's name, I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm doing my best here. Um, they come up with this theory of Dharma Shastra as a meta-legal tradition, as a system of jurisprudence rather than a system of positive law. So they're law books that provide information on sort of lawmaking. And the way that they're enacted in, in positive law in India, of course, changed dramatically over different periods of time. So, in some contexts, we'll see um, you know, verses of Manu Smriti, um, put into charters of, of temple complexes. And there it's very much Dharmashastra in the form of, of positive law that's been invoked. Um, I suppose that's one of the great takeaways of the book, is that we can appreciate ancient dharmashastra as a sort of philosophical tradition of jurisprudence um, that matters a great deal in the lives of the pundits who are crafting these texts as a way of you know, self-fashioning, as a way of um, drawing distinctions between the Southerners and the Easterners, so on and so forth, even if they don't have a great deal of legal um, effect. But of course, one of the innovations of the um, development of Anglo-Hindu personal law as a result of Warren Hastings' judicial plan of 1773 was that um, Dharmashastra texts were used as a source of positive law um, imperfectly, and and, you know, that, that changes the, the course of Indian legal history, I suppose.
1: Over the course of your research uh, in this area, um, were your findings more or less anticipated or expected, or were you surprised by what you came across?
2: I was very surprised by what I came across, um, because, of course, there is this theory of the schools of Hindu law, separated by the Dayabhaga and the Mitakshara schools, a debate between sort of Bengali pundits and then the rest of India. Um, and the typical assumption was that this was a phony artificial creation from Henry Colebrook and other Anglo um, Indian jurists. So I was very surprised to see that um, some, but not all, of this sense of competing schools of law was, was there, at least from the medieval period, um, that the Gauda pundits of Bengal sort of um, attempted to establish their own identity vis a vis Bihar. And so you the, get these appellations, we the Gaudas versus these other pundits out there, and that got picked up in the scholarly discourse of Varanasi in the seventeenth um, century. So I was surprised to see that that um, that these us and them distinctions, Easterners, Southerners, Navayaniyakas, Mimamsakas, got picked up in what was a theoretical discussion of ownership inherited, certainly, but one that had these practical implications that weren't um, necessarily tied to. You know courtroom debates about who got what when the um, you know, dad died and people wanted to fight over the property. So that surprised me um, very much.
1: This is this a topic that you will
2: continue to research?
1: or what would the next next project be?
2: Yeah, so um, my current project, um, I guess I'm a, I'm a postdoctoral fellow with the British Academy here at Oxford. And um, my project is Equity and Trusts in Sanskrit Jurisprudence, which is an equally um, boring sounding title. Um, but what I'm working on is, um, among other things, Hindu religious endowments. So it, it comes from some of my work on, on Swatra. But but as, as as most people would know, um, a feature of modern Indian law is that deities are the legal owners of temple property. and. Um, you know, they are the litigants in cases, of course, their, their suits have to be filed by other representatives. Um, and it's fascinating cases like Padmanabha Swami down in the former Travancore or Ayodhya most recently turn on some of the jurisprudence of, of, of deities as legal owners with the sort of boards of trustees representing their interests. And like um, the sort of modern law of inheritance in, in India, um, the origins of this lie in ancient Dharma Shastra, and in the uh, British reception of that in the 18th to 19th centuries. So um, I hope that that will have maybe more um, sort of practical interest to people, but also a bit more controversy. Um, so. Do you foresee
1: yourself doing comparative work across uh, religious traditions in terms of how ownership may work, uh, for example?
2: Yeah, um, so I I would say that in the introduction of my book, Ownership and Inheritance in Sanskrit Jurisprudence, there's a nice, you know, 30 page or so review of property theory um, in Anglo-American jurisprudence and European jurisprudence and Islamic jurisprudence um, and Hindu jurisprudence as well. Um, So yeah, you know, one of the great finds of, of modern studies in legal history is that are legal concepts, which a lot of people might assume are purely, I don't know, European or Anglo-American of contract and property and trust, are actually more global than people would have previously thought. That, for example, maybe the, the English trust has its origins in, in, in wafts um, from the Islamic world that came by the Knights Templar to the inner temple in London. Um, And for example, some proprietary theories of of, of property maybe have their origin in this Swatwa system in India sort of filtered um, into English discourse. Um, So, you know, the law is much more global than it presents itself. The law um, tends to be a fairly conservative institution um, just in the sense of sort of it views itself often as a a closed and hermetically sealed intellectual system. Um, But of course, um, that's a conceit and uh, the history would tell us that it's much more complicated than one would think.
1: To what extent extent are the Dharma Shastras um, the basis of modern Indian jurisprudence, would you say?
2: Right, Um, so the Dharma Shastras are of great importance in things like um, inheritance, adoption, so on and so forth, because they provided one substantial source of positive law in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. But they have been heavily modified by two things one, by formal statute. So, you know, the Hindu code bills of 1955 to 1956, as well as precedent from various courts. Um, so, they're one constituent component of, of, of a more elaborate jurisprudence that together uh, sort of you know, completes the Hindu personal law of India today. Um, I would give one example. It's in the book towards the end, there was a recent Supreme Court judgment um, about whether um, women would be coparseners in a Hindu undivided family, a coparsener, um, sort of a um, property owner in this family trust. And um, the Supreme Court used this concept of ownership by birth that's um, very big in the Mitakshara school and applied it um, to, to women, to daughters. And so it's a sort of remarkable and, and interesting modern development, one that's certainly equitable, um, but it sort of adopts the language of, of, of Dharma Shastra in doing so. Um, so that's one example, um, and there are many others. So you know it's um, it's complicated, I suppose, like anything. But if you read the book, or if, if your listeners purchase the book or get it from their library, um, they too can unravel those secrets
1: the riveting secrets of Sanskrit jurisprudence. Um, um, Was there anything else about the book that you hope we'd touch on?
2: Um, It has a beautiful map. That's one of my proudest achievements. It is (laughs) sort of behind the um, title page. There's a beautiful map um, made by um, Black Mare Maps, which I highly recommend to anyone who's putting together a book. Um, You know, a map tells a complicated story very well. And it has India in 1868 with the princely states and the various um, sort of jurisdictions of the schools of law. Um, and I think that that's a great achievement um, in the history of map making and um, of India, um, since it's quite complicated. Um, but uh, you know, it seems like a very complicated story. I can't stress enough that um, abstract concepts of, of property, abstract legal notions of who gets what in a family may seem completely divorced from reality, but they were integral in the history of Dharma Shastra, but also in the formation of, of, of the law as we know it in India, of its court systems that were developed in order to you know, um, adjudicate property disputes between family and in the revision of, of, sort of Hindus as a modern legal category. Um, so um, that, I would say, is, is a big thing. There's also beautiful charts and so on and so forth. And if I could apologize to everyone who reads the book, um, the dedication, which has a couple of beautiful Sanskrit verses, unfortunately has a typo. toyam um, There's an A uh missing in Keshavam. Um, so I should apologize to um, Lord Vishnu and to all of my readers who encounter that typo. Uh,
1: I'm sure you'll repent in your own way in your own time and uh for the you know thousands of Sanskritists among us Yeah, i don't think I don't think um many would have noticed it but 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 thank you for your transparency. I actually was uh going to ask you after the podcast that you brought it up. why do you start with the the uh, Ooh, with, with the Bhagavad Gita Samplitau, like why, do you, why is that? Why do you start off with that?
2: Um, it's auspicious. And well, it's very clever, I thought, um, because um, the first one is from Raghuvamsa and of course is an invocation to Lord Shiva. Um, and then the second one, which I got from that wonderful movie on, um, uh, oh, who is it now? The fact that my mind is blanking, is the Sanskrit movie on um, the great Vedantin, Shankaracharya. And they repeat this verse a great deal. You know, um, uh, like water that has fallen from the sky goes to the ocean. You know, namaskaras to all the devas go to Keshava, um, which of course is Vishnu. And so I thought I could have my cake and eat it too and give a wonderful verse to um, Shiva and then bring it back to um, Vishnu. I thought that was auspicious. And and surely I would have been unable to um, complete a book on elaborate dharma Shastric theories of property without some um you know divine assistance i
1: suppose divine grace and oh, yeah. it's a great way to he- hedge your hindu bet so to speak <laughs> <laughs> for the next one we'll talk about an inscription to the deity at the outset <laughs> all right uh it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today
2: yeah it's been my pleasure and it's really good to see you again raj um and thank you everyone for listening um i i really appreciate it
1: oh um uh, he mentioned to you again what what Chris is referring, what Christopher is referring to, is that I met him uh, twelve years ago <laughs> on a um 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 a research trip uh, as part of the um, IJHS, right?
2: Uh, the International Summer School for Jane Studies. And for the listeners out there, Raj was actually my very first Sanskrit teacher, um, and we ended up trapped on a bus that I don't know it was like. 14 hours on a bus, and everyone was just bored to death. Um, and Raj said, Would you like to learn some Sanskrit? Um, and we went through, you know, uh, the vowels and the, and the, the um, Shiva Sutras, basically. Um, and that is a very wonderful memory from a very long bus ride. And I could not be more grateful, Raj, um, for you getting me started on my Sanskrit journey.
1: Oh, great. So, all this is my fault. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Show me your thumbs. <laughs> may it be forgiven um, yes it's interesting it's interesting uh, The mysterious are the ways of, of, of the internet and podcasts <laughs> and, <laughs> and research to India but that was 2008 I'm almost positive so it was some time ago but clearly we have all um, 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 developed in different ways in the interim and maybe we'll chat after the podcast so for Thanks. those of you out there you're very welcome For those of you out there listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Christopher T. Fleming, uh, who is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford. We've been speaking about his brand new OUP publication, Ownership and Inheritance in Sanskrit Jurisprudence. Uh, Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating ownership. Take care.